It's 4 o'clock on a Monday, and you know what that means, don't you? It's time for another exciting episode of Taxi TV Live! Woohoo! <laughs> this week, starring very special guest star Gregory Schiller of The Attire. And we are going to talk about getting signed to a major record label. Welcome to the big show, Greg. Glad to have you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, man. Um, for those, and hello to everybody in the chat room. Welcome all. Um, Greg and I just found out literally 30 seconds before we went live that we live about a mile from each other. Uh, <laughs> But we can't tell you where that is, because if we did, we'd have to, well, I don't want to say it. It sounds so violent. <laughs> anyway, I'm really excited to have him on here because, you know, every taxi member, everybody who watches these videos, we have all had the dream or still have the dream of getting signed to a major record label, having people appreciate our music so much that they're willing to like sign you on the dotted line and, and send you a big check. And so when I was doing my background stuff on Greg the other day, I found this awesome quote. He's got a sound better profile and it really hit home for me. Um, uh, many of you know my backstory, so you'll see where, where we intersect. Uh, Greg said, before my dreams came true, when I got my first record and publishing deal, I was at rock bottom of my life. Let's just say I know what it's like to eat rice and beans six days a week and cry into the strings of an acoustic guitar. Fun times. But a few special people believed in my music, taught me how to turn my little iPhone voice, voice notes into publishing and record deal level recordings and it turned my life around. Uh, as many of you know, I had that exact same experience when I started Taxi. My wife and I lived on rice and beans for a couple of years. Sometimes we'd splurge, take a hot dog, slice it up paper thin, fry it up, add it to the rice and beans. And the running joke in the Lasco household was, what do you want for dinner, black beans or red beans? So, And I've always said that if you're not crying into your pillow at night, talking about a friend of mine, of course, um, you're not trying hard enough. So I, I really understood the teardrops on the strings. Um, in your case, you know, it was crying into the strings, but I, I can relate to that feeling of just like utter exhaustion and helplessness and desperation. And you, you just feel like, what more could I possibly do? So why didn't you give up and get a day job? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's a great question, man. You know, when you're when you're at that point when you're at rock bottom of your life, no matter what what it is. And for me, I was actually going through a chronic health, mysterious health problem. Uh, doctors couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. Uh, really, really ill. Basically, I thought I was on my deathbed. I thought I was going to die at 25. Wow. And yeah. And when you're facing that mortality as like a young person and you're saying, you know, what is the purpose of this great mystery that we call life? And <laughs> as I was facing myself in the, in the mirror, I knew it was music. And as crazy as that sounds or, you know, as silly as that sounds, I'm sure everybody that's in the chat and watching, like, they know, like, the reason that you get up every day and the reason why you do this is because you, your love for music. And when I thought I was running out of life at that time, I knew that I wanted to, I thought I was going to end doing what I loved, which was music. So I couldn't give up. Because I knew that this was this is what I'm going to do, no matter how long I live for, no matter what the quality of my life is, I couldn't give up because I just love music that much. Uh, you didn't grow up out here in L.A., right? No, I did not. I, know, where, I did not. I grew up in where, upstate New York. Oh, okay, cool. Um, yeah. So let's go back to the beginning and talk about 
how old you were when you got into music, what got you into it, that sort of stuff, a little background. Yeah, so, uh, you know, interestingly enough, my father, uh, he was a pianist, and he loved playing piano, and he played the blues a lot. And we didn't have a piano uh, until I was about five years old. And the funny story was that my dad was an electrician. That's what he did for as a day job. And one time he did somebody's house, you know, he like rewired their whole house in exchange for this beautiful piano that was sitting in their living room. The guy was like, I don't want it anymore. And he's like, I'll take it off your hands and I'll do your house for you. So my wow. dad shipped, shipped the piano and he taught me the blues scale. That was the first thing he did at five years old. I learned how to play the blues. And from then on, I was playing piano every day. I couldn't keep my hands off of it, even as a five-year-old. And I just loved it so much. And then my mom and dad, you know, they were super humble people. We came from humble beginnings. They did not have a lot of money. My mom, like, got a second job to afford me piano lessons because she saw that there was potential there for me to keep learning. And I just kept learning because I was so hungry. So from five to, you know, now I've been playing piano and I touch the piano every day. Without a, without a doubt, I always do it. Even if it's on a piano app on my phone, there's not a day I don't touch the, I don't, I don't touch the piano. <laughs> was it in your gene pool somewhere? Was, it, was there like a hardcore, you know, was your like great-grandfather a concert pianist in another country in another life? Perhaps in another lifetime, you know, I was, I was something, but I just, it was like natural. It was as natural as breathing. As soon as I touched the piano for the first time, um, it was like I played it before, and you know, not to get too woo or woo woo or crazy, but you know, okay. I believe in that spirituality stuff, you know, and I think it was there. Man, uh, it, it sounds like it. You know, your destiny. Some people, their destinies are revealed. I'm not woo woo at all, but I do believe in things like destiny and karma. Yeah. And sometimes your destiny won't let go of you. You may not even recognize it, but you did in your case, and. and um, it's it's a sign that just keeps happening over and over, like the fact that you couldn't keep your hands off a piano, you know? Ever, yeah, yeah, I believe in that. I think it was my destiny to always be a musician, and I think people feel that in their spirit, their heart, their soul, and uh, yeah, I know you do too, man. That's, that's why we're here. Yep, um, <laughs> I love it and I hate it, you know. I, I, I knew when I was nine years old and I saw the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan Show. I said, that's it. That's mm. what I'm going to do with my life. And there are times like, why didn't I go to medical school? Or why didn't <laughs> I do something else? You know, there are days we all love and hate our jobs. But I've got to look back 40-some years of, of doing music every day of my life. And uh, I have a lot more to be thankful for than regret. So, yep, you're right. 100%. Um who were your favorite artists growing up? You know, I'm so glad you said that um, or asked that. It's Elton John is my 100% favorite artist <laughs> of all time. Makes perfect sense. <laughs> you know, um, my dad, I, I really got to contribute so much to him. Um, one of the, the first CD, because I, I grew up in a time where the iPod was just coming out and we still had CDs and Walkmans and stuff like that. And <laughs> yeah. And my, I'm, I'm laughing because I still have a Walkman, but go ahead. It's the best. <laughs> my dad got me the Elton John Greatest Hits yeah. uh, CD. That was the first CD I've ever owned. And I played it until my CD player broke. Um, wow. And I just, yeah, I just p kept playing it over and over and over again. Like, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road and, you know, Candle in the Wind and your song. And I said to myself, I was like, I want to be just like him. 
growing up. I want to be just like him. And that was about fourth grade, fifth grade, and I've always gravitated towards his music. And to this day, I'll still blast Elton. Like when I'm driving down the 101 and stuff like that, I'm like, Elton's my go-to, you know? Love 70s music, love the Bee Gees. The Bee Gees oh. are a huge vocal, huge vocal in- influence in my duo group right now, you know, the attire. Um, right. I do a lot of falsetto stuff. The Bee Gees are a huge influence as songwriters and performers. But yeah, I'd say that those are my two. I know that they're, they're older acts, but they're, they're evergreens. They're classic continually. They'll never get old, never go out of style. That 70s music, it's my favorite. I know this show, this episode's about you, but I've got to insert something about me only because you'll be really jealous and I want to make you jealous. <laughs> my first day in the music industry, I got a job at Criteria Studios in Miami and the Bee Gees were just finishing up the album that had Jive talking on it. The Eagles were recording one of these nights. I could actually hear the wow. snare drum the snare drum from Take It to a Limit in the live chamber above the lobby while I was sitting there the very first time I ever set foot in a studio. Clapton was just wrapping up I Shot the Sheriff and Stephen Stills was recording a solo album. And so for the next two years, I, I, I would see the Bee Gees every day of the week, all the time. And I once stopped Barry Gibb in the hallway. I was 19 years old. I stopped Barry in the yeah, hallway yeah. and said, said, Barry, how do you, what makes a song a hit song? And he looked at me and he goes, emotion, mate. And just kept walking. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I still love Bee Gees records. I, I you know... That's awesome. I, I knew them as people, not as the megastars yeah. they were, but you know, it's just they were part of the family. There were like 50 of us under the roof at any point in time. And just all three of the Gibb brothers were the nicest people, very down to earth, very funny. Um, and boy, did they make great. Those records still hold up. I mean, they definitely come from an era, but the bass lines, the, the drums, the melodies, the harmonies, everything. Anyway, classic. classic. Yeah. Well, you've officially made me jealous, so <laughs> good. <laughs> that was my <laughs> intent, so I'm glad that I did it. Um, so, do you? Pl- I didn't ask you this before the show, and I didn't see it in your bio anywhere. But do you play other instruments as well? And do you program drums? I mean, are you capable of like fully producing a song in your home studio? I I just play piano and guitar. Those are my two things. Besides singing, of course, which I consider the voice and instrument as well. Um, yeah, yeah. Those are those are the those are the only three things I really do. Um, so tell me how it was that you met uh, Stephen Santa Teresa, who is your partner in the duo, which is called the Attire, appropriately dressed. Um, <laughs> uh, how did you guys meet, and how did you divvy up the workload, and how did yeah? Do, let's stick with that, and then I'll move on. Yeah. So Steven, you know, uh, Steven's like my brother. Uh, we actually met and became best friends in eighth grade, uh, in, uh-huh. you know, eighth grade, yeah, in, in middle school. And how we really became good friends was actually, I was a big troublemaker in school. Huge troublemaker. Really? Um, you don't yeah, seem the type. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was. And uh, we got in, I got into detention because there was a substitute in English, English class. I still remember the day. And I was cracking jokes while he was talking. And he, you know, wrote up a huge thing saying I got detention. And for some reason, Stephen was sitting next to me. He didn't do anything wrong. Stephen's like the sweetest, most quiet guy. Didn't do anything wrong. He's just sitting next to me, guilty by association. He gets put in detention with me. And um, <laughs> this poor guy, right? So I go to my English teacher, be like, Stephen had nothing to do with it. 
you know, like he's so cool. And, you know, she didn't let him off the hook for whatever reason, but we just hung out in detention and we became really close. And I always joke around with people and say, Steven was my first A&R person <laughs> because he, he, had a, he had a band in eighth grade and a pop punk band. And basically he wanted me to be the singer of the band. And one day in the middle of the hallway, after that faded detention, he said, Greg, sing for me right now. And I sang Let It Be by the Beatles. And all these people start gathering around as I'm singing. And Steven goes, you could join the band. <laughs> Just wow. like that. Yeah. And we became, you know, best friends making music ever since. Everybody else in the band dropped out. But Steven and I continued as a duo group, um, you know, for years. We've been making music for about 14 years together. Long time. Long and did time. he move out here to L.A. as well? He did. He did. Um, yeah. How do you guys divvy up the workload when you're when you're writing? Um, is one of you the melody person, the other one's the lyric person? Excuse me. <coughs> yeah. So um, with Stephen and I, we you know we do a really good job of like really going back and forth, and there's a really big flux. Um, I'd say that Stephen is more of the producer. He's really good at programming drums, and um, you know take, he plays like almost everything. And so he does like the bass, guitar, and drum patterns, and then I'll come in with the keyboards. I'm mostly like, I consider myself more of the top line person and Steven's more of the producer, but we share a lot of that stuff together, giving each other little things. Like Steven will come in with a fire like line. You come in with a couple great lines, you know, some amazing title ideas. And then I'll come in with some like, hey, have you considered, you know, changing this, you know, production here and stuff. We just kind of share, you know, that's what friends do. We consider ourselves friends first more than anything. and. It's just a, it's a real group project, and we believe in each other. So, it's it's really cool working with him, you know, for all these years. It'll never get old. Um, are you close enough and respect each other and trust each other enough that if there's something that you really really love in a song, man, I'm orange. I don't know what the hell happened to my video, <laughs> but I don't give a I don't give a damn. Uh, anyway, uh, I look good in orange. If if there's something that you write and you love it and you just think it's magical and he goes, dude, you're hallucinating. Will you just drop it and move on? Or, or do you have to make the case and have that tug of war? I think what's really cool about working with Steven is that we really, really respect and listen to what each other have to say and have the, have a true belief. So like, let's say like there's something that I bring or Steven brings and the other person's like, oh, you know, I'm not quite sure yet. We really trust the other person to say, let, let me live with that for a second and see what, what's going on here. And nine times out of 10, we're always like, wait, I see, what, I see where you're going from here. And then we also listen to each other for critiques and criticism from each other to make it the best. Because all we both want is for the music to be the best and the best that it can be. But Steven's a really successful producer outside the attire you know i'm a writer outside the attire something that we write you know for some reason doesn't jive with what the group is doing we could always take it somewhere you know and that's what we love we love each other we just want each other to win you know wow um a very mature approach um not all people with a creative personality or is evolved as it sounds like you guys might be or are <laughs> um so I remember uh, reading your bio that you had a deal um, mm -hmm. a few years ago, and the whole thing went to hell in a handbasket. 
Um, I'm, I'm yeah. sure that you were doing cartwheels the day you got the deal. It's like, yep, I'm there. It's all coming true. My fantasy, my dreams, it's all coming true. And then the whole thing went in the dumpster or dumper. Um, how did you not jump off a tall building? And how did you find the inner strength to stay the course and go for it again? Yeah, so like, I, I was first in my rock bottom, like we talked about, and I was like, oh, I gotta push through it because I just love music. And then all of a sudden we get this record deal, this first one, and we're like, yes, we go out, we fly out to LA, record our EP, and then in the middle of recording our EP, the label folds. Oof. The label just totally folds. Um, and I remember in that moment, as I was in the middle of singing a song, um, you know, it, it's not yet to be released yet. I'm really excited about when the song gets released, but I was singing a song and my heart was just totally crushed because I felt my dream like being like just sucked out. And I was yeah. like, oh, is this, is this it? But then that voice comes back like, no, you're meant to do this. You have to keep going. Don't give up. This is not where it ends. And um, I just was like, okay. Uh, maybe this isn't where the universe or God or whatever wanted me or wanted my music. I'm going to keep going. So we just kept recording the music and continuing as if the path was not rocky or unchanged at all. We kept going. And then, hey, all of a sudden BMG comes in and hears our music and says, hey, we love that music. We want to put it out. And then I was like, you know, everything works out, <laughs> you know? Wow, how, how long a period was it between those two events? I'm gonna be honest with you, it was about a, it was about a year, a year and a half, I think, uh, between the label, the label folding and uh, getting picked up. And so it takes a lot of patience, it takes a lot of belief, and it takes a lot of, um, well, a lot of writing. You have to keep writing, no matter what is in your field you have to keep going so we were just writing and writing making ourselves productive in that time uh how many hours a day do you write and do you have like a, a schedule like uh do you wait for the muse or do you sit down and just work on craft every day and hope the muse shows up when you're there you know I, i'm so happy that you asked this question and i've actually been coming to a big crossroads in my life of determining the uh of the efficaciousness of like setting a schedule every day and things like that um because i find my best music and the music that has truly been reacted to the most was is when i get this overwhelming feeling of emotion and i'm like i have to write i have to express this um you know a lot of times I consider myself a recovering workaholic, to be honest. <laughs> I think anybody that's that's in this, uh, that, I wouldn't even say recovering. <laughs> at, any, anybody in this industry knows that you you don't get to where, you know, even this first level of success unless you like, you eat, sleep, breathe, being an artist, being a songwriter. And, uh, but there's been times where I've sat down and I forced myself to sit down um, and try to write something when it wasn't coming. And I look at that as not productive time. I think it would be, it would actually be more productive to be going outside and living in the world. Even getting your heart broken is more productive for songwriting purposes than sitting in a studio and thinking about being heartbroken or thinking about those times. Cause it's, it's truly the inspiration that comes to you, right? So, you know, I struggle with it. I think people should sit down and you should give it a shot, but if it's not coming within the first couple hours, don't force it do not force it because your muse will hit you just stay open you know stay uh stay believing that it's going to come 
writer's block comes to everybody once in a while, but it's all good. It always works out. I, I try to write mostly when I'm inspired. How did you learn your craft and what do you do to keep advancing your skill set within the craft? That's a, another beautiful question, man. I, I think that the biggest thing for a writer to advance their craft is to listen. Less, less this, less this, more this, you know, because a lot of people, I think, as they go into the music industry, they become very jaded. Uh, they're listening to a lot of trendy songs. They're listening to a lot of snippets and things like that on YouTube or Instagram or TikTok. And they're seeing these things blow up and they're like, well, that's not real music or anything like that. And you're just like, well, hold on there. <laughs> Many people are, are, are reverberating with it. Why? And really dig into it, analyze it, listen to it, feel it. And the answers that you seek will come to you in that by through listening. And that's how you stay present. That's how you stay uh, modern, truly. I'm glad you talked about that because staying modern, uh, contemporary, viable, having that currency uh, is so critical. And it's been an ongoing problem that a lot of our members have struggled with for the 29 years I've run this company. It, and I totally get it. We all fall in love with the music that we fell in love with. And that's where and what we write is, you know, if I were a songwriter, it would sound like the Bee Gees, the Eagles, Eric Clapton, oh, yeah. Crosby, Sills, Nash & Young. Um, so it's really hard to stay current and your advice is perfect. Yes, you do need to listen. And so many people say, oh, I hate what's out there today. I, I think in some regards, yes, there's some music out there that makes me want to throw up, but there's a lot of music out there <laughs> where I go, it's gone to a level that I don't think those people are recognizing. There's a lot of great music out there and you're yeah. right. Uh, you know what? Combining your last two answers on the days when you're not feeling it, make those the days where you grab uh, grab your Walkman and head out to a park <laughs> with, with your headphones on and or grab your boombox and your headphones, go 100%. to the park and just listen, listen, listen and take notes because you, you want to absorb it viscerally. Um, when I was first starting out as an engineer, I, I would read interviews in Recording Engineer Producer Magazine. I would listen to the album that the interview was talking about, and I would write notes on, on the sleeve, the paper sleeve that the actual disc fit in, and then I would write stuff on the back of the album cover, and then I would take out a piece of yellow legal paper and write on that and stuff it in there. And years later, when I was the guy behind the console, I would remember, I'd have a moment, and I'd go, you know, it would, this song would be perfectly well suited if we did this production thing. Mm. Oh, where, oh, that was on a Doobie Brothers record. So I'd go pull out the Doobie Brothers record. Whoops, let me get rid of that. Um, I would check, check my notes, throw that thing on there, and everybody would go, wow, that was brilliant. How did you come up with that? Well, I didn't. I just remembered that somebody else did, and I knew when to use it. And I think those skills mm. are applicable for songwriters as well. 100%. Well said. Well said. Um, do you consider yourself a better lyricist or a better um, instrumentalist? Uh, do, you know what? Let me rephrase that. Do you start with a beat, with a melody, a lyric idea, or do you not have the same starting point? Do the songs come to you in different forms? 
So for me, there's two main ways that a song will come to me. And the first and foremost one is melody. Okay. Um, that's how I'll start almost 90% of the songs that I have. And I'm a firm believer in melody first writing. I have this little phrase I'm, I'm telling people. That's why I love to call it it's songwriting. The song <laughs> comes before the writing, you know? And uh, people are going to gravitate to your melody before your lyric, you know? It, it, that's what gets them hooked. They'll remember the melody. But what, keep, what keeps them is your lyric. So I'm a, I'm a huge proponent in melody first. So I get a melody that I call it a download. Like I'll get a download of a melody in my sleep when I'm walking around, when I'm driving in the car, in the shower. And I say, wow, that sounds like a great melody. Um, and that'll be inspiration. And then the other way is a title. If a phrase or an impeccable title comes out you know, to you, that can inspire an entire a chorus, second enti- an entire song, a concept, uh, because now in today's day and age, people's attention spans are so incredibly short. If you're going through Spotify or Apple Music or YouTube, your title has to blow everybody else's out of the water for people to even click on your song. And then you got like 10 seconds to really pull them in. So your title's got to stand out. I think that's the biggest thing. So no matter if you start with your melody or the beat or whatever first, Make your title engaging because it's it's got to be it's got to be really strong. Do you ever self-edit while you're writing and thinking, "Wow, this song has gotten so personal. It's really meaningful to me because I lived it. She was my girlfriend, or this was my horrible life experience that I learned from." And self-edit and go, "This nobody else is going to get this but me." Do you, <laughs> do you ever have that? Well, it's so funny to talk about self-editing. I find myself to be the king of self-editing and overanalyzing uh, a lot. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I am a perfectionist uh, through and through. Actually, I'm developing a new term for myself. I'm an excellentist. Um, wow. I, you know, yeah, I'm trying to be more of an excellentist. The perfectionist doesn't release anything. They, they never complete anything because perfection is unattainable. But an excellentist just the best that they know that they can in the in the time period that they can. And I encourage every songwriter to be an excellentist. But yeah, I mean, what's funny about my lyrical approach that I think some people get, uh, they can even get aggravated with in songwriting sessions with me is that I love the personal approach. As long as it's true um, personified lyrics, I think, I truly believe that people relate to um, people's personal experiences, even if they didn't themselves go through it. Like, for example, there will probably be people in the chat that they might have heard um, us talking about our experiences of having no money and eating rice and beans every day. Interestingly enough, you and I went through the same experience, but there are people that they didn't go through that, but they still related to it in some way. And it was that personification of it that made us look human that gave this, the, the interview a lot of humanity right off the bat. And uh, I think that that's how songs are too. The more humanity you have, I think the more people it will grab somebody. But if you make it so specific where it's not relatable at all, that's where you'll lose people. So it's a, it's a healthy balance, but I'm a huge fan of like relatable, true. Oh my God, if it's, even if it's not per, like personified and like really, really niched, at least make it true. Because people, people radiate authenticity in their songs all the time. How do you edit the story into... Lyrics today are generally very, very compact and much more rhythmic than they were even five years ago. Certainly more rhythmic than they were 10, 20, 30 years ago. Yeah. Um, 
I fancy myself a pretty good editor of the written word when I'm working on marketing mm -hmm. stuff or, or whatever for taxi. But and when I think about songwriters, I mean, you guys have eight words for a line in a song, and, and you want to tell the story of uh, my favorite example. You know, I met you under the Eiffel Tower on New Year's Eve in Paris. It was a cold, snowy night. We looked into each other's eyes, and we fell in love. A great songwriter can say that in eight words. How do you yeah. learn that, you know? I mean, is oh, that something, man. did you read books about it? Did you study what other people did? Um, great question, once again. Uh, you're awesome, man. I love these interview questions. Thank you. The, uh, <laughs> the uh, you know, my one of my favorite books is uh, Writing Better Lyrics by Pat Pattinson. Right. Uh, he actually taught, taught, taught at uh, Berkeley School of Music really great really great book and, and it taught me a lot about rhymes and actually what you're talking about compacting the the melody and compacting the lyrics into the melody i find myself just over time just realizing like i could say more here in less um and it's a skill that i i encourage every writer to develop like if you say like i went to the eiffel tower and we kissed and it was snowing you could say in a line like snowy nights eiffel tower you know like in that little bit of melody and people would be like yeah i get what he's saying um it, i think it just comes with experience and time but definitely check out that book to anybody that's you know interested in that kind of stuff it will definitely help you and it's just kind of a feeling like if you said a whole sentence that line like lined up one thing you know Say more. Put it to two <laughs> things, you know, three things, uh, you know. I, I've actually known Pat for my entire time that I've owned Taxi, and he's been a, a speaker at our annual convention that we do a bunch oh. of times. <laughs> and, and, and I'm so amazed at, I, you know, honestly, I read his book. The year that I started Taxi, or a couple of years later, very early in the Taxi arc, as it were, um, I read his book and I actually got invited wow. to speak at Berkeley and I think and that was the first time I met him and wow. I remember thinking I need to keep a bottle of Advil next to me while I read this book because it's deep I mean it, it, it's not something you can breeze through but if you no, really invest no. yourself in understanding what's on every page read every page twice it's it's brilliant and um, I, I think that somebody once said to me oh, these people, uh, you know, that write these books, they haven't written any hits. Sometimes you have to, if you're a hit songwriter, you would tell people how to write hits the way you write them. If there's yes. a bigger picture. That's what people like Pat Patterson, Robin Frederick, um, a friend of mine named Ralph Murphy. Yeah. They bring that bigger picture to life so that you can find the path that works for you. What? I'm so glad you said that too, and that's for a lot of people to to know. Don't discredit somebody just because they're not a, you know, a hit writer. I look at it like a coach, right? Like you know, if you watch sports, people watch like football, or you know, if you've seen who coaches the the winners of the Wimbledon, they're not they're not champions <laughs> themselves, but they coach the people that are champions because they they see the bigger picture. I'm so glad you saw that, and I'm so I'm so happy that you actually personally know Pat Pattinson because he was a huge inspiration, and that book was a huge inspiration to me. And it definitely influenced my lyrical writing. Well, I definitely. promise you that at the 2022 Taxi Road Rally, 2021, we're doing one more virtual one. 
and 2022, hopefully COVID will be over enough that people will feel safe to come. We take over <laughs> the Westin LAX on Century Boulevard every year. We've been doing it now for nice. 25 years. And um, I promise you, I will introduce you to Pat. And uh, I would love that. Yep. Five love bucks, that. man, and I will make that introduction, I promise. <laughs> Easy. All right, let's do it. <laughs> um, how many hours a day would you say, on average, you work, and how many days per week do you work at this? Is it, man, it's, it's nonstop. You know, I have to be honest with everybody. I wake up, and my job as a signed artist, as a signed songwriter, is nonstop from from waking up, getting off the pillow, to to hitting the pillow again at night. Now, some people say, "Well, that's impossible." You know what? It it's not, and I'll tell you why. The food <laughs> that I put in my body, right? The workout that I do, the the vocal gymnastics that I do. If I'm not recording in the studio, I'm writing. When I'm not writing, I'm melodying. I'm vocal producing. When I'm not vocal producing, I'm producing for the next re record, or I'm writing with somebody else. I'm writing or working on my music actively for eight hours a day, like a full-time job, you know, but Monday through Sunday. And then um, besides that, like working out, I, I run, I do cardio and I'm singing as I'm running. Uh, I'm working out, getting in shape to, you know, look the part, you know, I hate saying that, but you, you know, you have to get, in, you have to get in shape, you know? And, uh, you know, and even like my meditation, I meditate for an hour a day and I do and I have a manifestation journal. And in my manifestation, wow. I have I have yeah, a manifestation journal and I have a vision board and I look at that for like 30 minutes before I go to sleep. And it has Grammys and BMIs and interviews for microphones. I'm manifesting this life. So everything I do, I'd say every second I dedicate to. I would not even say a career, it's like a lifestyle of being a songwriter um, and trying to be the best one uh, that I can be is a 24-7 is job. You have just given me tremendous hope. I mean, you've already accomplished a lot for being a young guy, um, but you. You, you have just given me tremendous hope for your long-term success that will come you. You know, over a period of many years and in many forms. <laughs> because. I, I'm a firm believer that I read for an hour a day, every day of my life, I think, uh, even Sundays, I will read business books. I love marketing. I love anything yeah. I can learn about marketing. And I, I think that the reason Taxi is so successful is because I've learned so much about marketing and management and the way people think. And I've long recommended Put a post-it note on, on your bathroom mirror so every morning when you brush your teeth, you look at that, just that one little moment where you go, I'm going to accomplish X today, or this is who I am. You can't just sit on your butt and wait for the world to manifest it for you. It, nobody owes you anything. And I'm amazed oh. and proud of you for being somebody who realizes oh, thank you. that you've got to bring it all. You um, have to go for it. Yep. I have to go for it. So I'm going to read a pretty long preamble here. Sorry to hog the mic for a minute, but it, it's I'm really fascinated. I, I, admittedly, look, I, I'm in my 60s. I'm a little out of touch with the process of what goes on, how you get a deal today. And I mean, I know how to make introductions. Taxi does that really well. It's been 20 years since I managed anybody um, and had to shepherd a deal and a lot of things have changed. So I'm going to hit you up for some information on that. Before I do, here comes my long ass preamble. Um, <laughs> so 
Let's see, I've got to find out where I want to start this. Yeah, let's get into the red meat and answer the questions viewers really want to know about. How did you get signed to that first deal? When that fell apart, how did you get signed to the second deal? Blah, blah, blah. But before I officially ask that question, I want to give this preamble, which is back in the day, artists wrote songs, demoed those songs, played a lot of gigs, built a following of loyal fans that would come out to their shows every time they played in their area. And eventually, if you were extremely fortunate, some A&R people would hear about you uh, through the grapevine, maybe their A&R network, maybe through people in other bands that were out there. They would eventually get their hands on a cassette or a CD of your demo, and if they liked what they heard, then the A&R people might just get their butt on a plane and fly to where your part of the country is and check you out at a show or two um, and see if what they heard on the CD translated on the stage. Um, if you had great songs, an ever-growing fan base, a good look, tons of charisma on stage, and a manager that the label had confidence in, which was actually a pretty important part of the formula, you might get offered a deal. Then you'd get an advance of somewhere, and this was you know 20 years ago, you'd get an advance somewhere between 100 grand and maybe even a million bucks if there was any sort of bidding war going on. Typically, probably around 250K is what the label would advance you for a record deal. And then you'd find the right studio, the right producer. Um, you'd spend a month or two making a record, um, using that advance to pay for it. Any money that was left over, uh, you got to keep. And that's what the act would live on. So hopefully that they could concentrate their lives fully on music rather than working a day job, you know, hanging sheetrock or serving Taco Bell. Um, and if you were really, really fortunate, once you got the record deal, sometimes uh, publishers would come out of the woodwork and say, we want to sign a publishing deal with you because we know that you've got a record coming out. So they know that there's a higher probability than signing you as a staff writer. Um, and they might advance you a hundred grand more, giving you some money to live on while you're waiting for the record deal to, uh, the record to get traction at radio growing your fan base by touring in a van and smelling the, the stinky feet of everybody else in the van. So, you know, you did this stuff and you had to rely on people to label and your manager um, to get excited about what you, the record you made, um, to get the field promotion people, get the radio promotion people, get all these people to label excited and give the record that forward momentum that, that and all that gave you was a chance of having a hit. A lot of people believe that you could buy your way into having a hit. Maybe some have, but for the most part, it was the label using their resources to like get all the ducks in a row. So you get all that muscle behind you, um, and hopefully you rose above the other 80 or 100 acts that are on their roster. And let's not forget, though, that if you got that 250 from the label, you got 100 grand from the publisher. It's a $350,000 advance um, that you had to pay that back to the label and the publisher out of any money that you earned before you got to stick any in your actual pocket. So on top of that, you had to give the manager 20%, give the IRS 30%. So basically, you were left with $175,000 to make the record and feed and house the band until the big bucks started rolling in, which they hardly ever did. And yet somehow, many musicians hold on to the fantasy that their music is just so incredible that if just one big executive hears it, they'll get signed, get a suitcase full of money, and be touring in a private jet in no time. 
how is the process different today? <laughs> well, in many ways it's similar and in, in many ways it's, it's different. So I think the big thing that what you, when you were saying about getting everybody excited and, and things like that, it, it's still true to this day. As soon as your song is created and you have this dream that you want to follow, everybody that you know that comes across that song that it, it, you know graces their ears your goal and dream should be that your song excites them to get you to to get another person to buy in so um i think today's music industry is a little bit different because um obviously with the there's so much competition on the front end now i think you know anybody can release music anybody right. can put their song on spotify anybody can put their song snippet on tiktok so now the question is like well how are you cutting through um you know with that and i'm going to tell you that what many people uh i think that they're afraid to say or that they're not willing to admit but it is truly it's not just about who you know but it's who you're kind to and who you personally make an impact on and i'm gonna i'm gonna meet your preamble with a little bit of a story that's gonna kind of make this make a little bit more sense be my so, guest all right, all right. So strap in, everybody. This is the story of all stories. So okay. Basically, basically, what happened was um, a long time ago. Um, you know, unfortunately, my sister, my older sister, she was diagnosed with synovial sarcoma. It's a type of cancer. She's okay now. Thank yeah, God. she's okay now. Thank God. But um, she had cancer, and I was in college at the time, and Stephen and I were still making music, and. Um, you know, basically what happened was I was so moved before we talk about what inspires you to make music. I was so moved by my sister's battle uh, for cancer. I saw her lose all her hair. I saw her go, have to go into the hospital at like four in the morning, you know, going into Manhattan to get this treatment, struggle with the bills to pay. And I wrote a song about witnessing somebody go through this hardship being the being feeling powerless of being like I, I don't know what to do as this person's brother who I love so much so Steven and I wrote the song and what we did was we put the song on YouTube and we wanted to start a charity like a donation link to synovial sarcoma survivors and we put that up and it went mini viral at the time it went mini viral on like in on the East Coast the American Cancer society uh they played it at their real life relay for life every business in our small town by the way steve and i live in a very small town there's more cows than people it's like two miles long every single business put our song up the youtube video on their web page right wow so yeah so like the pediatrics you know that i went as a little kid they like put it up on their facebook and the gym that i went to uh Santa fitness in washingtonville right they put they put up the um the video on their facebook now this is where the story gets interesting and why i'm going to say what i'm going to say I, little did i know when i was working out at, at this gym there's this big huge buff dude that was benching like 250 pounds right and he's this huge guy and he would ask me this little skinny guy to help to help spot him right and i was always <laughs> like yeah man of course i had no idea who this guy was and he's this the nicest sweetest guy he's like a teddy bear he's huge massively ripped and he saw that song and little did I know that the guy that was going to my gym who I spotted every weekend was the vice president of human resources at Atlantic Records. Wow. 
had no idea, right? We had no idea. He saw the song and said, I want to talk to that kid. He talks to me and said, listen, I'm, I'm human resources, but I know everybody at the thing. And I think that your song is really special. I want to, I want to introduce you to some people at, you know, at the label. So I get introduced to these awesome people at Atlantic Records who let me go into their studio. Then they say, okay, Steven, and you, we love you. They helped us. They said, we think you guys are artists. This is going to be awesome. Then, you know, so then we started writing in the studio that Bruno Mars was recording at, you know, just like they were letting us come in because they believed in us. Then we, then they introduced us to our, my first A&R meeting. Yeah. So basically I, you know, this guy at the gym helped me meet all these people at Atlantic and, you know, one handshake led to another, led to another. And I just kept writing music in this time and kept improving and working on my music. Um, you know, after meeting these A&R people, giving me great advice. And basically it led to me shaking hands with, at the time, my then production company that signed me, my first production company that signed me, because they heard my music and they were like, I really think that, you know, you have what it takes to be an artist. You know, I think you got the look, the voice, the music. And I was so humbled, you know, that they felt that way. So they took me and they basically shot me to you know different different labels and we had multiple offers come in for the first you know the first time and i think it's because of that personal introduction that helped you know because we didn't have a single song out nothing was released right. at all and so we just had these demos that people could hear through the demos and say hey i think that these these could be hit songs i, I really believe in these records so you know it's hard you know i w i would love I wish I could say this, you know, this this thing of being like, I wrote these songs that stood out amongst millions of people. But truly, it was because the songs on the front end of an interpersonal connection, which I think is the most important thing in music, because that's what music is, right? It's connection. It's human connection. Um, so my advice to everyone is be kind to everyone and spot everybody at the gym because you never know <laughs> who that big dude that you're helping lift weights is is actually helpful to you and um no but but seriously I, there's so many ways to get in the music into the music industry and you should be always doing so with integrity and be um you know just just keep doing your best and your music will speak for itself at, that's no matter what your entryway is and most importantly though because I kept working on the quality of the music that I was really uh, not releasing, but making, yeah. um, it's that's what get, got me to stay. Because an and an introduction could get you any introduction into the door anyway. But what keeps you in the room is if your music st stands to the test of time and and really helps the, those A and R people believe in you as an act or as a songwriter. You know, I, I, that's a great story, and obviously uh, everybody needs to work out more. Um, <laughs> you know, it, look. It, it was right place, right time. But there's a really important fact that some people may overlook, which is you had the goods. Not only were you in the right place at the right time, but the music had to be good enough. And I think we live in the age of the internet now where things like Spotify, YouTube, TikTok, um, I think a lot of people think that it's, it's those tools that can make you famous, but you don't have to worry about the music. Well, the music is the root of everything all those tools if you're just a b plus or an a minus you're close but that's 
if you're an A minus and using those tools, the chances are you're not going to get there. And now some people yeah. are going to say, well, I hear music all the time that that I think is crap. And, and clearly they have crappy music and they use the tools and they got there. Well, it may be crap to you, but there might be, you know, four and a half million 14-year-old young girls that think it's amazing to them. So one man's crap is another man's, I don't know, <laughs> something. <laughs> exactly. So, Let's talk about um, TikTok for a minute. I know that um, oh, I lost my place here. Uh, oh, naked. Um, I, I want to say that I remember reading that you had like four, four and a half million views on TikTok of naked. Yeah. Um, which I wish I could play the song, but then we get into the whole copyright issue with YouTube, which is what we're going <laughs> live on right now. Right, so. right. Um, but I will have you, you know what, as a matter of fact, can you tell everybody where they can find Naked so after the show they can go have a listen? Of course, yeah. Naked by the Attire is out everywhere. You can search on YouTube, <laughs> Spotify, Apple Music, Tidal, everywhere. Um, you know, and, and it's our song that, you know, as Michael was saying, it, it went viral on TikTok, um, which was really exciting. It amassed over 5 million views, wow. you know, hundreds of thousands of likes. It was really exciting. Um, and TikTok is a tool, you know, a lot of people think it's, it's like this get rich scheme. Like, you know, if I go viral, then uh, it's just another tool that you should have in your in your arsenal. And it's a it's a marketing tool for you to help your music be heard by people that would have never heard it before. You know, so do you have any advice for the people watching? Um, like how to make something? I mean, I. I know that there are ways that you can buy a certain amount of virality uh, on any of the social media platforms, but yeah. it's not genuine. Genuine, you know, authentic vira virality, viralness, whatever the hell you would call it, uh, is one person remarking to another, which is basically word of mouth marketing is the best ever. And, and social 100%. media gives you a great way to accomplish that goal. But can you tell us, did you just merely put it up on TikTok and, and then sit back and go, holy crap, look at this thing, it's blowing up, or did you do something? That, that, is, that is quite literally what happened. Um, wow. One of, our <laughs> one, of our, one of our managers was, was like, hey, you guys should, uh, actually, it caused, it was awesome. It caused a hot mess, to be honest, that it went, wow. it went viral. It was an accident. It was a total accident, right? And that's where, like, I, once again, I wish I could look everyone in the eye that's listening and be like, I have the secret to the TikTok algorithm that I can share with you for three payments. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I, it's, it, there's, 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 no, there's no actual uh, rhyme or reason other than the fact that we were just being authentic and being ourselves. And one of our managers said, hey, I think you guys should go on TikTok and just try your best and, and just put up a video, even though the song's not releasing till next week. It, the same, things leak on TikTok all the time early. So I said, okay. So Steven and I got into his Jeep and we blasted the song and we were jamming out on TikTok and lo and behold, virality, like overnight. Now, the funniest thing about this, Michael, I have to tell you, and I'm sharing this with everybody, I swore off social media the day before. <laughs> I did, I, I did, I did. I'm telling you, I, I said, this stuff is, is not so great for my mental health. I think that there's so much validity that's wrapped up in the likes and the hearts and, and the friends. And I'm like, you know, I'm going to take a break. So I deleted TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, all that stuff off my phone. Totally deleted it. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> and 
And that is the joke. Because then what happened was Steven, Steven took, we took the video on Steven's phone, put it up. And then I get a call from my, my manager being like, um, I know you're not going to like this because I know that you deleted all your social media, but we kind of need you on there because the thing went viral. I said, I can't, I can't believe it. I, I can't believe it. So, you know, that's just the whole fun of it. Um, you know, some people would say that it's, it's luck and stuff like that, but it's not. I think that there's a certain formula in terms of what really does explode on TikTok. And the n number one thing you said before was authenticity. Being yourself is what's really going to attract quality followers that are going to actually share and like your stuff not just this flash in the pan like doing you know trends and stuff like that we released an original song that we truly felt um had a powerful message and could help people heal from the heartbreaking situations that they had with their exes and that's what our song naked is about and uh and, and it went viral i'm really grateful and humbled by that really wow when did that happen not that long ago right no, it was in March when, uh, when it did. And, uh, you know, and we're still marketing the song on TikTok now. I mean, a song, a good song never dies. And we believe that the songs are strong and we're going to keep marketing them. So, you know, a lot of people, what they do, I think they make the mistake of a song is released and then they like market it for six weeks on their social medias. And they're like, oh, well, everyone must be sick of this. So I'm done right. sharing my music. No, keep keep going, you know, especially if you believe in the music, be yourself, sprinkle in other stuff in there, but keep marketing your song, put up a video every once a week of, a, of your song that you believe in. And you never know, TikTok, hey, I deleted it the day before it blew, blew up. So, so. You, you have a lot of power. I mean, you're gone. Um, I was going to say you broke the internet, but no, you, you kissed it off and boom, look what happens. So I, I want to open up the floor to questions from our viewers. We've got a half an hour left, and, and that was a great story. And, you know, I, I keep Thank going you. back to the obvious thing, which is write great music because all the tools in the world can't, uh, well, you know the old phrase. You've probably heard this. You can't polish a turd. Um, that phrase has been in the industry longer than I have, and that's a long <laughs> time. So... Uh, you know, and if you have something really solid that actually sounds like a hit, then I don't want to sound all woo-woo, but it attracts good stuff. So let's see if the 100%. gang gang in the chat room. Hi, you guys. Haven't seen you all day. I've been so busy over here. We've got Kenny Reed, Marion Laird, Jack H., Dan Weber. Any questions? Oh, they liked your story. Uh, um, cool. Thank you, guys. I'm looking for it. You know the drill. If you have a question, there we go. Michael Lehman wants to know, when writing a song and you come to a part where the scan of the lyrics doesn't quite fit fit in with the melody, do you generally change the words or the tune? Oh, cha change the words 100%. Never sacrifice your melody. If you think that your melody is like the, the best thing since sliced bread, don't cram a bunch of like lyrics into that melody. Um, you know, your melody always wins out over the lyric. And, you know, I, I know I hate saying that as like a songwriter and I really, I really believe in my lyrics, but you have to fit into that melody. So many people make that mistake of sacrificing a great melody, but, you know, just don't do it. Don't do it. Great question. Do you ever write a melody where you feel like, wow, this is so good. Somebody else probably did it and I don't realize that I'm ripping them off. 100% <laughs> all the time. 
all the time. And then I ask everybody. It's actually like this thing where I'll come up with a melody. I said, this is, this is really catchy. And then I go to like people of all backgrounds, of all ages, said, what does this sound like? And they're like, I, don't, I can't think that sounds like anything. I said, thank God. And then I, then I run with it. But it happens, happens to me all the time. Um, songs from a headband wants to know, where's the best place to listen to the top 10 records without ads? Oh, that's a that's a really good question. I'm actually I don't know I, if I have the answer to that question because I like I listen to you know Spotify, but I have the paid version of it. Yeah, it's like uh, ten YouTube. bucks a month, right? Yeah, ten. yeah, yeah. YouTube has it. I'm sorry, I don't know the answer to that. I'm so sorry. I wish I did. I would say fork over the ten bucks. You're talking about trying to build a career here. Invest ten dollars in yourself. Um, Huge. Super blonde has a question. Uh, do you think that the video on TikTok is what drove it, or is it more about the music? It's kind of that's it. No, it's a, it's a great question, and I would I would honestly say it's it's kind of both. Like the music is what kept people there, but the virality of the TikTok helped push the streams up, and like kind of like let that like wave of listeners kind of influx, and that like gets everybody uh, involved. Because then when your streams go up, then people. I hate to say it, but when your streams go up, then people start looking at your music through a different lens with a different level of validity and professionalism. They're like, oh, this has a million streams. It must be. Right. So, uh, <laughs> I, we're all that be, way. But don't be fooled by it, though, because I've heard some music on, you know, on Spotify and stuff like that that had less than 100,000 streams or whatever. And I said, I, I think this is a hit song. I'm shocked. Yeah. And that happens all the time. And, I, and I'm not trying to give false hope to anybody, but, you know, also, too, I had Naked, which I don't know if you know this, but Naked was written in 2017, okay? It got released in 2021. I had, a, I had this song, The Way That It Is, yeah. um, get me a record deal, right? But many people also rejected that same song. Um, many people rejected They're like, I don't hear it. I don't get it. I don't think it's a hit. I don't get that. So don't give up on your music and, you know, don't you know always keep your ears and your heart open when you listen to music don't be fooled by the streams or the following of people's stuff you know back when i was still producing many many decades ago uh i would go to new york i, I was living in miami at the time i'd go to new york with what i thought for sure was a hit song a hit record hit group and i would go to half a dozen a and r meetings in a day and something that happened all the time i'm curious to see if this has ever happened to you is they listen to your thing and play they go not bad it's pretty good and then they pull out something else that they've signed recently um to say oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This, this is what was worthy of me signing and you're sitting there thinking sometimes they're really good but more often than not i found myself sitting there biting my you know like the inside of my lip going it sucks <laughs> uh, have you ever had that experience in either way where you thought it was great and realized you had to up your game or realized look everybody's entitled to their opinion they're just giving a best guess as well yeah i i think that um that has happened in almost in almost every uh meeting that i've had where somebody <laughs> says oh well this is you know like you, you perform or whatever and i don't know if it's like a trick in the book you know to kind of get you off your center but they're like okay that was great also here's listen to this record that just came out that i signed and it's just like <laughs> what did you think of the music that i played you and right. and they're like yeah it was good we'll be in yeah <laughs> we'll, we'll be in touch you know and uh <laughs> and, 
Um, no, but it's super fun. And my thing that my recommendation for when, when you have your first A&R or publishing meeting or whatever, um, take, take criticism um, that feels true, like truly feels true, like that there was no ego in it or, or anything like that. And there's a difference. You kind of got to feel that, you know, feel the difference. But don't ever think that your music's so good that it's, it's uncriticizable. That's never true either. You can always improve. Um, no such thing as perfect. So, you know, keep going and, and just, just feel if it feels true to you. Um, but yeah, people will do that to you all the time. And also to just normal listeners, like you could be showing your um, family. It happens to me with my family. I love my family, but I'll be like, hey, what do you think of this song I just wrote? And they're like, that reminds me of this artist. Let me pull it up on my Spotify right here. Yeah. And <laughs> I don't even get through a verse of my song. I'm like, I'm like, okay, mom, I didn't know that it made you feel that way. Um, you know. It will happen all the time, but don't don't lose your center. Just be like, hey, I I think this music is good, and I believe in this music, and that's what's most important. Because praise can be just as deadly as uh, criticism too. You know, if you really start to let that get to your head, don't let it. You know, you you, you made a song, you you love making music, and that's why you do it, and then you move forward. And that's why you just keep writing. You know. How did you learn to write melody? That is. is... I, I listen to Don Henley's lyrics and I go, okay, there's a guy that understands editing and, and compactness of lyric and impact of lyric, all that stuff. So there's something out there you can learn from. I've never understood how you, um, I'm not an accomplished musician, but you know, by any stretch, but how does one musician listen to another person's stuff, melody, and learn from that without just ripping them off? You know, it's like, I, I, it, it, what is a modern melody versus a dated melody? How do you learn mm. that stuff? It, it, it's beyond me, frankly. Oh, uh, that, that's an amazing question. I, you know, my favorite thing in songwriting, and I prob probably my greatest, uh, I don't want to say gift or talent, or, but the thing I bring to the table the most is melody. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that's my greatest skill. Um, and where do I, where do I learn from my, my melodies and, and kind of like gain the knowledge from? Studying the greats. Who's my biggest melodic inspiration? You might be surprised. It's Burt Bacharach. That's wow. right. Burt Bacharach is the best melody writer. I will go to war with anybody right here in the chat. Burt Bacharach is my guy. <laughs> yeah. he, he's, he's incredible. And here's, here's what I learned from Burt Bacharach that I'm going to give somebody my greatest melodic uh, secret. Don't steal it and, you know, steal away from me. No, I'm just kidding. Make hits. <laughs> Burt Bacharach does this thing where he starts on a on a non-chord tone okay and it's not something that he he ever talked about it's not something that he's ever done or whatever but every one of his melodies he starts on not the chord tone that's like in the chord yeah. so it starts as like a dissonant thing and then the next notes he resolves it and it makes the listener like oh my god that was so beautiful it gives you this breath because you're like holding your breath in anticip anticipation for that note to finally resolve so, so does he I, come? Does he come back to the chord when he resolves it? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. And that's that's what I do. And I, I encourage everyone if they check out my song uh, "Naked," right? I actually employed the same technique, not the same melody or the same notes, but the same technique. You look for broad strokes and melody people that you really like, whether it's repetition, groove, where they place the melody, and you borrow from those broad sweeping elements and take it. For the song Naked, I start on a non-chord tone and resolve in the next note. It makes the melody super catchy because that dissonance 
to your ear, it feels so sweet when it when it resolves. And many people should be employing more dissonance in their melodies, and I encourage everyone to do that. But yeah, even check out the song, check out Burt Bacharach. You'll hear it in almost every every song. You know, what's it all about, Alfie? You know. You know, there's a part of your brain that's right here, um, like right above your ear, and it's called Broca's area, B-R-O-C-A, I believe. Hmm. And it's the part of your brain that notices when things are different and stores it because it is different. And I do remember, maybe it was a book that I read years ago. I can't remember the author, but it's called like, This Is Your Brain on Music or something like this. Oh, wow. And... and um, or, or maybe it's music.dna, you know, I think I've read them all at some point, but it made the point, don't, don't be afraid to be different because Broca's area will recognize it. But I love the fact that you added the resolution where you come back rather than just being like, I'm going to freak everybody out and throw some stuff in their face that they've never heard before, make them go, ooh. Um, you're giving them a note that takes them off yeah. the path and then brings them back to the path with the res resolution. Yeah, yes. Very smart. Yes. I like it. You, 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 have to, you have to have surprising moments in your melodies, um, whether it's a rhythm or a groove or a note, because that's what's going to get the listener like, wait, what was that? What just happened? And keep them invested. And it's also what makes it catchy, you know, like just like off-center, I advise everyone to keep their verses familiar because as though people, I know people look for differences and that's what catches people. It's familiarity that makes them like, uh, you know, kind of get the music and, and really understand it, you know, really uh, feel that they know this piece. Oh, I feel like this is a familiar piece. This feels pop. I like this, you know, so. Yeah. It's a mix of both. <laughs> and what the hell is pop? I get, that's probably the most often asked question that I've had in the last five or 10 years of my career is, What's pop? Well, it, it, the, it's the root of the word popular. So whatever is popular now is pop. But what was yeah. pop in 1965 ain't pop now. So there you go. Pop yes. that in your popcorn popper. Um, <laughs> do you produce, Ken Mesford wants to know, do you produce your own music? I co-produce my own music. You know, I do vocal production and, you know, I work with my, my duo partner in the attire, Steven, we produce together. So I consider myself a co-producer more than an actual like full producer, but I'm taking production courses and I've been really inspired to keep learning and going down that route, you know, because once again, never done learning, never done perfecting your craft, never done working. So that's another thing that I, I think would add to the value of what I bring to the table in a session or to my music, you know. When I was researching you, I saw that um, you had a quote, and I'm paraphrasing it here, that somebody signed you and brought in other producers and mm -hmm. i i remember being at like a bmi awards or ascap awards years ago and somebody won song of the year and it's like you know four songwriters and then six producers uh, <laughs> how do you deal with an outside producer when you yourself and your partner steven produce your own stuff is it hard to give up the reins and let somebody else take something that came from your guts and, and totally remold that piece of clay uh no it's not hard at all because you know as we we lightly touched upon it before like steven and i try to have a no ego approach and it's very difficult in the music industry for people to be like i try to have a no ego approach because music's all about like your ego and your heart yeah. and your soul and your spirit 
but you have to let it go because you know if you're truly you know a connected person into the music industry and a connected person to the spiritual spirituality of music we're all one and we're all working towards this goal together now if you let go for a second and you're able to have the hum the humility to realize you're you know that you can't take something all the way all the time okay not everybody can unless you're prince or something like that right <laughs> but if you if you don't and can't it's okay to say, you know, I wonder what it would be like for somebody else to take the reins here and just try something. Nine times out of ten, it's magic. Really? And if it's that, yes. And if it's that one time out of ten, it's okay. It's your song. You could take it back and say, hey, it just didn't work out. No hard feelings. No, no ego. It's just, hey, I don't think this was a great fit, but let's work on something else together where we can start from the beginning. <laughs> you know, I think... I think and that's give, all it is. They give you the peace sign on the way out the door. Yeah, sure. I'll be back. Uh, again, very mature of you. Um, man, your parents did a good job raising you. Oh, uh, thanks. Um, Darren Moss, all the way from Australia, wants to know, what do you nice. think the pros and cons are of signing to a major label versus doing it yourself? Well, the first uh, pro is, well, there's actually many pros. Uh, there's a lot of people in the... Uh, in modern day, like social media, that will they will bash like major labels all day. That's because they don't I'm, have I'm, one of those deals. They well, would take in a minute if they were offered it. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> the one thing. And obviously, I'm a little biased because I, I have I have a major um, you know label that's backing me and believes in me. I'll tell you some of the pros that I truly believe in, and then I'll tell you the only con that I could think of. But it's not a con in this circumstance, and I'll tell you why. Okay. Uh, for me, but the the pros are that you have money okay like they're a powerhouse or a financial powerhouse the labels backing you with money that you would not have had access to marketing budgets could be huge and as a single sole proprietor of your music you'd have to work a lot of hours to save up the money to promote even one single i mean you've worked in a, for a long time in the music industry michael you've probably seen some of these marketing budgets are like hundred two hundred thousand dollars for one song that's like a single and then going to radio forget about it some pop songs are like a million dollars Yep. Um, I was working at the church. Uh, I was a church organist uh, before I got signed at the for you know for my record label. I was a church organist, and interestingly enough, I was a youth minister, uh, and I loved that what I did, and I loved my boss, and I loved my my church, but I wasn't making enough money to support a million dollar radio campaign. <laughs> uh, so you, you just can't do that. So that's the number one pro is like is cash. The second one is going to be a little bit interesting. You wouldn't you wouldn't have really thought about this before, but it's just extra ears on your project. A lot of people get into this hermit mentality because we've gone into this new um, culture of bedroom production where you're sitting in your bedroom and you're just sitting here like this and listening to your music just by yourself. It's just you doing doing the songs. And uh, that could be very lonely and also could be very dangerous because if there's nobody there to critique or backboard off your music, you don't know what your audience is going to be listening to the first time. I mean, um, if you're just sitting there making your music and like you think it's art, that's wonderful, but it's really your audience that's going to be determining the quality of your music. It's the people. Having more people's ears and having people that are invested in you financially and personally are going to help you. Now, let me tell you what I think the perceived con is of, of record labels. The perceived con is that you don't have freedom. People think that if you're signed to a major label that you can't release what songs you want to release or you can't release when you want to release or it's like this big behemoth of a, 
uh, of a company that slows you down where people without any label yeah on their feet they could they could release any single they want they could release two singles a day if they wanted to because there's no quality control and there's no quantity control but with a label there is however in our particular deal which you can negotiate if you get a record deal you can get artistic uh control you can get creative control of your project which we have in our deal and bmg was so lovely to afford us that and that means that we can choose who works on our music who like mixes it who you know like when it gets released and what gets released i mean you have all the freedom that you want so we're really really grateful to have such a wonderful deal a lot of people that say these things about record labels i feel that they don't have them as you mentioned before and they what they think a record label really uh, takes away from you um you know it's just not true and it's not the case all the time some people get hurt in record record deals you know they do i would be lying to you if i said that some people didn't but in this case you know we're lucky to have an amazing lawyer an amazing company uh, that's full of integrity and it worked out you know no cons at all I've met people that have been signed, been dropped, or asked to be dropped, get out of their deal because they were so unhappy with their label. And yeah, you're right. Sometimes the stars don't line up. Um, back in like the mid to late 90s, um, there was a band that myself and our vice president, Taxi, and my business partner, Taxi, we managed a band for a while, and they were on MCA Records. And wow. the head of radio promotion from MCA left, got fired, whatever happened. And the woman who replaced that person um, just hated the band. And she literally proclaimed in a meeting, you know, in the boardroom, I'm sorry, I just don't love this. I can't get behind it. It was over. It was literally over right there in a second. So yeah, there are those horror stories. But yeah. part of your job as an artist ain't just making great music. It's getting everybody at the label excited about you. Um, yes. One of the things that we did with that band was we took all the assistants out to dinner. Uh, the A&R assistants, the radio promo assistants. <clears throat> we took like 30 people out to dinner one night at a restaurant in like Studio City or something. And we took pictures of them all. And while they were finishing their dinner, we had somebody print the pictures and we went and bought, uh, I think, bottle like 40 ounces and roses. And for all the guys, wow. we left the pic. We went back to MCA and we put uh, the roses and the picture on their desk and the 40s and the picture so that when they came to work the next day, it was just a cool little thing. They were where they got behind the artist. But then all it took That's was cool. that, that one lady getting the, the new job and going, eh, I don't like these guys. Over. Yes, yes. That was smart, though, and that goes back to our original theme of be kind to everybody. Yep. Everybody. That's awesome. That's right, especially the assistants, because they do do all the grunt work. And 100%. if you don't have them on board, you're screwed. A um, couple more <laughs> questions here. we still got nine minutes left. Uh, what do you think separates someone? This is from DeVale Studios. What do you think separates someone from who just gets a record deal with a major and someone who goes mainstream? So yeah, there's the getting signed and then there's having a hit. What's the difference? Oh man, you wanna know what I think the difference is? A millisecond. And now what <laughs> I mean what I mean by that is a millisecond in terms of the work that they put in, a millisecond in terms of the timing in which is everything is happening around them, a millisecond that it takes to make an impact and have a personal greeting. 
uh, you know, I always have this joke. I have an amazing mix engineer that I work with, and he always says, what's the difference between a pro and an amateur? And he always goes, a millisecond. And I've adopted that, you know, for myself because it's true. Anybody that's willing to go that extra mile, I think that they will find success in what they do. Um, and but But to answer your question on a more literal level, it's just going to be about, it's truly about the marketing of the song. So you have to have a great record that you feel really confident is, is a, a smash hit. And then you have to market it until the, the, you know, until like, I don't know, until the world ends, you have to keep marketing it. I, I didn't realize, and you know, until I was signed how important marketing a record is. I just thought that you made like a special song and that everybody loved it. And it was awesome. Right. We have this like, but it's not, it's the money in that marketing budget. So, Yes, to answer your question, on a, on a personal level, I believe that the difference between what somebody gets a record deal and then actually success in that record deal is how hard they work and being a good person as they're doing it. And then the actual way is going to be the money that's in that marketing budget. That's the biggest one, to be honest. It really is. I've seen it a thousand, uh, probably tens of thousands of times over the 29 years I've run Taxi where people say, and this breaks my heart, they save their money they go make uh, an album, they pay some local studio, they make an album and it's very good, it's respectable, it sounds like a record. The songs could probably be a little better. Maybe they should have spent more time crafting the songs, less time worrying about, oh, I used an engineer that recorded a platinum record 12 years ago. That doesn't right, matter right, right. all that much. It's about the songs. But then yeah. they make the mistake of pressing up 500 copies at Disc Makers and then they end up with 485 copies sitting in the garage collecting dust because they never had a marketing plan. They never had any marketing budget. You could have the greatest music in the world. I found this out with Taxi. This is why I love marketing. I thought my idea for this company was so incredibly good that musicians would hear about it and just be beating a path to my door. It's like, how are they gonna hear about it? Through osmosis? No, marketing. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's it's a hundred percent true. I mean, and you attest to that now because you have a successful company that has a truly genius and innovative idea, right? And I'm not just saying that because you. you're interviewing me, right? But it truly is. <laughs> Thank you. No, no, but nobody nobody is doing it. Nobody has done that. Nobody is even thinking, and I don't even think anybody could on the scale that what you're doing it, right? So the fact that you are attesting that this amazing idea that was sitting there and being like, all right, what do I do now? Because you already had the idea. It was marketing. It. And it, and it almost sucks to say that. Like, I wish I could look everybody in the chat and say, if you make a great song, it will magically blow up. But it's not. It, 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 it is marketing. And even virality is a level of marketing. You know, like putting stuff on TikTok. That's marketing your music. I saw a, fa uh, a quote the other day about somebody that said, songwriters should market their music as long as it took for them to write and record and produce the song. Wow, that's not genius warm. advice. Absolutely. I never advice. looked at it. I never looked at the same. I was said that's the smartest advice because I will take. I'll be honest, guys. Sometimes I take weeks. I take weeks finishing a song, a line. I'll take days. I'll be like, this isn't right yet. When it gets right, then I'll record it. I'll take days comping the vocal, melodizing it, and, and and getting it, producing it weeks after it's done. And then I'm just like, okay, well here it is. You got to spend as much time, if not double that, marketing the song easily. Um. 
And it's good that you know when it's done. Uh, there's a, a marketing guy named Seth Godin. If you've never read any of his books, you would probably really love them. Um, you should, like that. Do you have a pencil nearby? If not, I'll text it to you. But Seth Godin, G-O-D-I-N. G-O-D-I-N. Yep. It's in the book. All right. Um, his He's written like 20 books. I think I've read probably 17 of them. The one that I finished reading a few months ago was called This Is Marketing, and you'll find plenty in there. It's the kind of book you can finish it off in an evening, and you'll oh, go, cool. man, I'm so so glad I spent that 20 bucks. But one of the things he talks about is at some point, you just got to ship it. Enough yeah. already. You know, you can only melodyne that vocal for so long, and is it going to sell one more copy, of, you know, one more stream? No, it's not. It just has to be good enough that it ships. It's got to be great enough it ships. But you got to yeah. get it out the door because you can labor over it, labor over it, labor over it. If nobody hears it, all that work means diddly. Well, that's what I'm talking about between a perfectionist and an excellentist, right? And an there you go. It's ship. They ship their music. They got to yeah. ship it. I love that. You will definitely love his book. All right, one more question, and then we're going to wrap it sure. up. And while I'm waiting for that question to come in, I want to let everybody know. I think I had a note that. Hang on, let me get my book out. I am not going to do a quarantine happy hour tomorrow. I've got another Zoom thing that I've got to do at 4 o'clock. Um, but I will be back doing a quarantine happy hour Thursday, August 5th at 4 o'clock on this channel. And if you're enjoying today's conversation, please give us a thumbs up. If you like the fact that I turn orange every now and then, give us a thumbs up. <laughs> if you like what... Greg is having to say, which I think is incredibly good advice, give us a thumbs up. And if you're not a subscriber to the channel yet, click that red button, damn it. All right, let's see. One more question. Um, all right, this, wow. Uh, this is from Super Blonde. How can I pitch my fully written and charted songs to established performers? I, I want to jump in before you answer this just to say, um, I've been in the industry for a long time, Super Blonde. I don't think since the days of like Tin Pan Alley has anybody given a damn about a chart. You can't hand off a chart to somebody and go, here's a hit, look at this chart. They, wow, look mm. how orange I am. What the hell is going on? <laughs> Weird. Anyway, um, so how would you, uh, do you have any, where where did it go? Um, I want to repeat that question again because I stepped all over the answer. How can I pitch my finished songs to established performers? I've got a well, you know, Well, <laughs> you know, I, I think I think that, well, t taxi music. <laughs> um, you know, that, that's definitely one way to do it. But what I would suggest is when I was starting out, before I had a publishing deal and all that stuff, I actually had... Besides being a singer myself, I would get together with other um, artists and people like that, and I would just meet. They wouldn't be like high tier artists or anything like that, but they were just people that did it as a hobby, and I would give them my songs to sing, and they actually started singing it. And then some, they had a bigger fan base than I did. So even if they had a thousand followers on Instagram and I had five hundred, somebody was hearing my song in a bigger capacity than what I would have been doing myself. You don't have to go to. Uh, Rihanna or Katy Perry with you know your chart and be like, could you please sing the song? Because <laughs> it's probably not going to happen. But 
Um, if you go to, you know, if you know that your next door neighbor Joe has a Spotify following of 500 people, have him sing your sing your song, and then you'd be surprised at at how each person uh, kind of like lends itself to another to bigger stuff, and then you'll get somebody with a hundred thousand followers, and then you'll get somebody with a million, as, assuming that your quality of your writing continues to stay awesome, and you're doing your best, and you're working with those people. I would start there. Uh, you know, don't and yeah, go to your local bar and grill after quarantine kind of ends, and you'd be surprised. The people that I've met playing at um, there, there's this awesome tavern back where I live that was called like uh, you know the Captain's Table, and they'd have live music, and I would meet the musicians every time, whether they became friends and session musicians or if they became people I would write a song for. That's how you do it. Start hustling now with the smaller people because that's where you are right now. But you climb together. Um, and hey, there was this there's this guy who I love. He's a writer too, and he's signed. He was an assistant A and R um, at the day and back in the day. And what we did was we hung out, and he wanted to be a songwriter. So I wrote with him, an assistant A and R who wanted to be a songwriter. Guess what? That dude had a chain smokers cut two years wow. after. So that's a good. You one. just you just never yeah you just never know who you just write write with the people that are climbing everyone is hungry with you and you will get somewhere where that was like one of the coolest things i witnessed was somebody that was an aspiring songwriter we were we were some of his first songwriting sessions that dude has huge cuts now he's an incredible talented dude and he never gave up on his dreams so that's my advice for that one seriously that's great advice uh we see a lot of collaboration a ton of collaboration amongst our members um mostly in the film and tv side of things and, and i see yeah. that literally every day where somebody who is brand new to it but they have maybe they're a great vocalist but not a great writer or maybe they're a great producer but not a great top liner and these people meet at the convention they meet in the chat room here on taxi tv they end up collaborating, and one of them inevitably is more is further down the road on a business level than the other, and, and this other person contributes and gets to ride their coattails in to the point where now this production music library says, "Wow, I like what you're doing," and they get the entree because of that. So I think that that's really solid advice. Going back to sports bars for a second, there is a sports bar, which I, I never go to them, frankly, but you know where the Vaughn's Grocery Store is, halfway between our, where you live and when, where I live, right? near. Yes, yes. Okay, there's a sports bar on the corner there. Um, I'm going to take you out for a cheeseburger as your reward for doing today's <laughs> show. I think they've got the best cheeseburger, uh, and, and I love that place. So... And I also love the fact that during the quarantine, they were the first place to open up with outdoor seating and everything, almost nice. as kind of a, a little bit of a F you, but uh, anyway, a, <laughs> yeah. a great local business that a lot of people got behind them. Anyway, cool, um, Greg, you've been a great guest. I'm really, really, really happy for you. So genuinely happy, and I believe that whatever success that you have had and continue to have in the future, um, you deserve it all, man. It sounds like you're doing all all the right stuff. I think you were inspiring to our audience today, gave great advice, and I look forward to having you back on the show. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Greg Schiller, thank you very much. I will see you soon. I'll see you because uh, we live about a mile from each other. <laughs> and I will see you guys on Thursday for a quarantine happy hour. With that, I bid you a fond farewell. Bye.